The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Shana Farrell. She is an interviewer at the University of California, Berkeley's Oral History Center, where she works on a wide variety of projects and specializes in contemporary cocktail culture. She is the author of Bay Area Cocktails, A History of Culture, Community, and Craft, and the book we'll be talking about today titled A Good Drink in Pursuit of Sustainable Spirits. Ms. Farrell holds master's degrees from both NYU and Columbia University and has a background in environmental work. She has also worked as a bartender where she not only poured spirits, but learned their stories, who made them and how. Now living in San Francisco and surrounded by farm-to-table restaurants and high-end bars, she wondered why the eco-consciousness devoted to food didn't extend to drinks, and that's what we'll be diving into today. Welcome, Shanna. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, your book is really a surprise for me as a dietitian. I look at alcohol as part of how much should we be drinking in terms of overall public health. But I never really thought to dive into distilled spirits the way you have in your book, and it's really a welcome contribution. I look at, of course, wine. As a dietitian, we look at the resveratrol in wine. We talk about how the grapes are raised organically, sustainably. But you take it a step farther by looking into distilled spirits and also their history and how their production really is agriculturally based and why we should be looking at them like that. So tell me, you've done some environmental work. I've listened to some previous interviews that you've done. You've done work with waste and compost in New York. How did you go from there to diving into what happens behind the bar? Yeah, uh, I think that's also a great description of the book. So I very much appreciate it. And I think that all of it is related. When I was in graduate school, first at NYU, I was bartending during that period of time. And so I was working at my first oral history class actually was about the Department of Sanitation in New York City. And we were looking at the role that that played in life and then also converting a former landfill fresh kills to a park. And so I was really thinking about the waste stream and composting and what's at stake when we don't compost things. And so really translating that to the bar in practical terms, making sure that we're recycling bottles or what happens when we're cutting limes to the ends of limes. So it was kind of all connected. And then when I moved to California in 2013, composting is a a part of life here. It's just, it's a municipal service that's offered. And so I was able to start to to move beyond the waste stream a little bit and look at the sourcing of ingredients because, as you mentioned, I'm surrounded by high-end restaurants and bars, and often on their menus, they're attributing the farms where they're getting their produce or their protein from, 
But when you flip the menu over and you look at the cocktail side of things, they carry ingredients that are full of artificial ingredients. And that was something I had done my own research and discovered. And when I would ask for an alternative, that wasn't available. So it really started to make me think about the disconnect between the kitchen and the bar. I think it's so important that we raise this issue. And there are so many talking points that we could go forth on. But I do want to start with the waste stream because it was something that really spoke to me in the book. And of course, a huge amount of water is necessary, both in certainly beer brewing as well as in spirits. But I don't know that we really think about that. And yet in Kentucky, I think it's at Maker's Mark, they say that the flavor of their product is very much related to the quality of their water. And hallelujah that somebody is paying attention to that. I completely agree. I think water is a very important component of this whole story. And actually, the original idea for the book was about how water travels through the whole process. But as I dug into it a little bit further, many distilleries have no idea how much water they're actually using from start to finish. People who use municipal water can just turn on a tap and they pay for it. So they're not really looking at the volume or maybe they share a tap with the brewery next door. And so there's really no way to quantify anything. Yeah, I think it's a super important part of the story. And coming from California, where environmentally it's a state defined by fire and drought, water is something that's constantly on our minds. So the idea that we don't know how much is going into such a water-intensive process is a little troubling to me, and I'm, I'm really hoping that people start to pay attention. It is interesting in terms of Maker's Mark, their campus sits on a watershed that's 101 acres, and they actually control a hundred of those acres. At least at the time, maybe that's changed since the book has come out. But when I was down there doing research, they controlled majority of that watershed. And so they were able to use the water on their land for distilling, for fermenting, for bottling, for cleaning. And so they really wanted to think about how are we going to be good stewards of this watershed, this land, so we can make sure that this is sustainable and we can continue making bourbon for years and generations to come. Another distillery, I think, who is really thinking about the water thing is Montagna, and they're based in Colorado, and they're a certified B Corp. So they have to actually quantify everything that they're doing, including their water usage. So we're starting to see some more distilleries think about it. But yeah, you're right. In large part, water is not much of a conversation. Exactly. And I thought it was interesting, too. You visited the Leopold Brothers, and they moved from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where they had a brew pub, to North Denver. And I'm thinking about all of these Western locations with regard to their water use and how expensive, if it isn't really expensive now, it will become increasingly more so, and how they plan to navigate that challenge. Yeah, the Leopold Brothers is really interesting because one of the two brothers is Scott, and he's an environmental engineer by training. And before he became a partner in this distillery, he was actually working for a company where if people were like Fortune 500 companies that were not in compliance with the regulatory laws and producing too much waste, either they were about to get fined or they already got fined and they had to change their systems, he was going in and helping these companies comply to the regulations across all different types of industries. And so he was designing their systems. He was creating those blueprints. And that's what he did for the distillery in Colorado. 
is really put in these energy efficient systems and everything in that distillery is in service of sustainability, which also translates to, to flavor as well and the, the taste of the alcohol. But it's really high quality and they're thinking about these things through and through. And so I think by implementing those types of systems, that will help in the future. But there are places in, in California, like St. George Spirits, we have to think about the implications of the drought. And their master distiller, Lance Winter, said, you know, really, ideally, what we would do during a drought is just shut down all operations. But financially, that's not feasible. So I think that these are going to be topics that in the future people are forced to deal with and think about what the water usage is, how to cut down on things, and how to make things more efficient. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I was thinking about with regard to this total subject is the kind of bar waste that is generated. And of course, it drives me crazy. I've done a lot of background research on plastics, for example, with regard to environmental pollution and public health. And I think about how many plastic cups go outside of the bar. You know, if you want to take a drink outside, say to a music venue, it's invariably served in plastics as they don't want to have glass breakage. The little plastic straws, of course, are horrible. The little trinkets that you get with a glass, you know, the little umbrellas or whatever with a mixed drink. And then you look into the food waste that's also generated from garnishes. Let's talk a little bit about bar waste. And maybe you want to bring up dandelion in London because of their focus on this issue. Yeah, the food waste is really important. And I think that's one of the downstream consequences of cocktails and spirits, essentially. And one of my not so popular solutions to this is to eliminate garnishes because they are so wasteful. I don't know that bartenders would be happy to hear that because there's a saying you should drink with your eyes first. And those umbrellas or that fancy mint, that's all part of it. But there are some people in the book that are really dealing with this, including Ryan Chetiwardana, who is part of the Lion Group based out of London in the UK. And at Dandelion, they were, well, I think it actually started before that at the, the previous bar. They were really thinking about water waste and not having ice at the bar. So there's less water being used and you can batch a cocktail using water instead of stirring it to order with ice and you know you batch it and you put it in the refrigerator or in the UK there are different laws where you can get alcohol in large quantities and not carboys but essentially big plastic bins so there's not so many single bottles in the United States we can't do that there's laws that kind of govern that but there was less waste that way. You could reuse some of those plastic bins and other parts of the country for that. So you can eliminate some of that waste. And then I think that there's been some conversation and there's a, a group called the Trash Collective that are thinking about reusing ingredients. You know, if you're juicing a lime, can you reuse the lime husk or something and turn it into a cordial? Or how do you reduce the footprint of some of those other ingredients? And then this idea of What's sustainable in terms of balance? Foraging became a really popular idea in bars across the world, essentially. But if everybody's going out to forage for ingredients, the ecosystem really can't handle that. So what are the limits and how are we responding in terms of trends, I think are really important. I do think that the, the waste stream is something that a lot of bars can control a lot easier than the waste that's produced when spirits are made. 
that's kind of their area. So whether that's, you know, not running the faucet during an entire bar shift to clean tools continuously, or there's this thing called burning ice where you, at the end of a shift, if there's ice left over, some places will use hot water to melt that ice. So you're using water to deal with water and it's just so incredibly wasteful. And so all these ideas do go beyond the plastic straw thing. So Right. Yeah. And I also think that you had mentioned like trinkets. A lot of distilleries to incentivize bars or bartenders to buy their product, they will send like keychains that are made with rubber and they have leather as the, the holder and they're all wrapped in plastic. <laughs> and bartenders have the power to say, you know what, I'm not going to accept the shipment if you keep sending me these trinkets because they just end up in the trash. So there's that component too that's a little bit lesser known. Yeah. And it's actually quite common in many industries, the little swag bags that go out to try to promote a product. It's really ridiculous. And when you start drilling down and thinking about how much waste is generated by this, it's tremendous. And you bring up a really important point that I actually drew out of your book, and that is the power of the bartender, not only yeah. with regard to ordering spirits and the practices behind the bar, but also the power that you have to help your patrons ask critical questions. So the title of your book is A Good Drink. So if you were helping, you know, you've got a customer at the bar and you've got some time to kill, how would you help them understand what a good drink is? Yeah, so I think from a bartender perspective, the sourcing of grain and ingredients in spirits or liqueurs isn't necessarily part of the conversation. So a lot of that onus really falls on the bartender to do outside research. So given that I was bartending and I was interested in these things, like I knew on my own that this spirit was made this way or this spirit was made this way. And so when somebody would come in and they would want a drink or they would ask for a suggestion, I would pitch to them like, hey, do you want to try this bourbon because it's made this way? Or like somebody wants to drink mezcal. I live in San Francisco, so tequila and mezcal are very popular. So that was a, a good gateway. And I would say, hey, do you want to try this mezcal? It's actually made from 100% X type of agave or something. And I would talk to them a little bit about the environmental component. Or conversely, like if they were drinking a Negroni and I would mention to them like, hey, maybe you want to try this substitute for Campari because Campari has X and Y and Z additives in it. And you would just see the light bulb go on with it. People were like, wow, I have never really thought about this. This is really interesting. And you can tell pretty quickly if somebody is open and receptive to that idea. But the people that were really wanted to engage in these questions. And then I would be working a, a couple weeks later and they would come back and they would say, you know, hey, after we have this conversation, I started to think about this and I started to look at the liquor store for these different ingredients and that part was really gratifying. But it takes a, a bartender to be interested and want to do that. I do think from a consumer side, people who are interested in this, instead of maybe going to their bartender to say, hey, can you give me a sustainably made spirit Instead of going to the bartender, I think going to a liquor store and doing it from the retail side is a really good way to go about asking some of these questions. And I think the retail side, it's their job to know 
the details about these things, and they have a lot of buying power as well. So as a consumer going into a liquor store and saying, hey, I want a spirit made this way, or if you have a particular brand like the Leopold Brothers, hey, do you guys carry Leopold Brothers? And the more that people ask for it, the more that those retailers are going to be invested in kind of making the, the, the customer happy. Yeah, that's great advice. We're halfway through, so let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Shanna Farrell. She is with the University of California, Berkeley's Oral History Center. She's also the author of the book we're talking about today titled A Good Drink in Pursuit of Sustainable Spirits. I want to touch on something that you mentioned with regard to the whole questioning of ingredients in these products. Because as a dietitian, what do I want to know when I'm looking at a product? If I have a client, for example, that has diabetes, it's important that I know how many grams of sugar are going to be in that mixed drink that they're buying. And I remember when I first started trying to find out ingredients in liquor bottles, I was like, wow, this is really different from looking at a food label. And I'd have to call the maker, the manufacturer directly and say, this is why I need to know, and can you tell me how many grams of sugar, for example? And you take a much deeper dive into these ingredients, and you talk about petroleum being one of these additives because of it, it gives some viscosity or mouthfeel. And as you mentioned, the Campari has red dye number 40. How is it that the average consumer can find out what some of these nefarious ingredients are in their popular drinks? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's also one of the reasons why there is a disconnect between the kitchen and the bar. So food is regulated by the FDA and spirits are regulated by the TTB. So it's a, a trade and a tax bureau that's regulating things. And it's more about the monetary aspect. Spirits do have to fall into that. It's called the generally recognized a safe list that the, is governed by the FDA. So there is that component that it has to be safe and it has to be on that list to be in there. But because of the different regulatory agencies, spirits don't have to have an ingredients list on their bottle. If they do, it's an option. If you're adding caramel for coloring to add the illusion of age, that doesn't have to be on the bottle. If you are adding high fructose corn syrup to your liqueur because you want that texture, you want that viscosity, you want that mouthfeel, that also doesn't have to be disclosed. And so that part I find pretty troubling is that you don't necessarily know. I think some with spirits and categories like gin, vodka, bourbon, you pretty much know there's not going to be anything crazy that's in there. This really happens more with liqueurs and cordials where these additives come in. And so what I usually do is I'll do a, a Google search to, to figure out what's in this. And you can find it, but I think that asking for that transparency is really important. You want to be able to make that choice. You want to know exactly like how many grams of sugar is going into something so you can make the choice about what's best for you to consume. And so I have found that distilleries or liqueur producers that are really transparent and have nothing to hide, when you go to their websites, it usually says that up front and center on, in their information. So it's really easy. The transparency is pretty obvious. When it's very hard to figure out what the ingredients list is, that would be something I would warn people to be cautious of. If you, you're having a really hard time finding out what's in something or just, you know, it's not coming up on a website or in a Google search, chances are it's probably something you don't want to put in your body. 
Right. As an oral historian, you, I'm sure, interviewed many, many people for this book. And the individuals that you selected to have their stories shared really do grab your attention and bring you right into this book. It's a fabulous read. But I wondered, how did you plan the outline for this book? How did you choose to have your South Carolina distillers were chosen as your introductory couple with High Wire? And then we get into Agave, and then we talk about the Leopold brothers and so on. How did you plan the organization for this? Yeah, so I wanted to look at each category of spirit or a different category of spirit because these environmental issues are different depending on what the base of them are, what that agricultural product is. The issues that relate to corn are different than agave, and those are different than pears for brandy, let's say, and it's different than sugarcane. So I kind of wanted to look at what the spectrum of issues were And I really wanted to go through the process of distilling from start to finish. And whiskey, because it's so popular, it also happens to be one of my favorite spirits. I wanted to start that way. And High Wire were really inspirational in terms of thinking of their work as an agricultural product. And so I think that they kind of kicked off things in a way that I was really thinking about them. And it went from there. And... I guess I was sort of thinking about organizing the book in terms of where things were in the process. So really starting on the farm with whiskey and then going to the fields with agave and talking about the whole production side of things and harvesting and then looking at gin and vodka and the distilling and then looking at rum thinking and the rum is with the bottling I was thinking about and the the additives that get added. That's where that conversation happens. And then brandy, I really wanted to think about consistency and how do you keep going after 30 years, especially in California, in the face of climate change, and then going downstream to the bartenders, and then finally thinking about scale. Mm -hmm. So it's all well and good to do this on a small level, but what happens when you want to grow your business or your demand is increasing? How do you solve for those things? Or what are the trade-offs that are made environmentally when you're trying to scale up your business? I'm so glad you brought up the issue of scale, because I think it's something that so many good food and drink producers have to consider. They've got a great product. They're being really successful. How will scaling up impact not only the product, but the quality of their life? Yeah, it's a really important question. And everybody's sort of addressing it in different ways. You know, most of the people that I'm chronicling in the book are independently owned or they're smaller operations. They're not owned by large corporations. And so it's why I did want to include Maker's Mark because they do have a very big parent company with lots of investment money. So what are the choices that they are able to make with that money? Were they able to think more about the environment? And in fact, they were. They don't tell that part of their story very often, but they have a whole land stewardship team. They have lead certified buildings. The team that the land stewards, you know, they don't really have anything to do with the distilling, but they go around and they plant native grasses and they're thinking about drought resiliency and some of the the crops they're using. And they also implemented a recycling program on their campus and eliminated single use plastic bottles. And so that part was really interesting thinking about that. But there are trade-offs there. I mean, they don't use organically grown corn. That's something that they could do, but they don't for whatever reason. 
But some of these other places, like the Leopold brothers, have basically said, we're at max capacity. We're not going to produce any more volume of what we're doing. So instead, we've built this malt house so we can grow and malt our own barley and then we can sell it to other places in Colorado. And that's a way to scale up the business model and kind of spread what they're doing to other places. And then there are places like Highwire who just moved to a bigger distillery and they can make a little bit more, but they're using a few more farms to grow their Jimmy Red corn. So they approach the model that way. Instead of trying to tax one single farm a little bit more and grow a larger number of corn, they're working with a bunch of small different farms. So they're kind of scaling that way. And then financially thinking about, hey, we have this new distillery. Can we rent out spaces to grow our business? And can we throw dinners? with the local culinary scene to make these connections between the spirits that we're producing and the work of local chefs. So kind of bringing it all together that way. Well, I really love Anne Marshall and Scott Blackwell's story with Highwire. It's from so many different perspectives that I love their story. A, yes, they're using organic grains, but they are also practicing seed security by bringing back this Jimmy Red corn And I don't think many of us realize that this industrial corn production is also feeding the spirits industry. So you bring forth that important aspect of this business, but you also talk about racial justice and the role of African-Americans and slaves in the distillery practices years ago. Yeah, I think it's a really important part of the story that doesn't get told very often. You know, who's doing the labor and what's the impact? I think the environmental component is really important, but also taking it a step further and thinking about the social component of things. You know, who are the people who are in the distillery doing this work? And historically, how is that all connected? Those are pretty large issues. And, and, you know, I think about that a little bit in terms of the rum chapter as well, because of colonialism. I mean, that's a really important part of that story, too. And I think we're getting to the point where we can't leave those components out. But yeah, in terms of the seed security, the industrial farming part of it, you know, yellow dent field corn is the one that's widely used for whiskey production because of its consistency, because of its sugar content to be able to ferment and actually produce the alcohol, because it's a resilient grain that no distiller who uses yellow dent is going to have to worry about a supply for the following year. But people who are using smaller land race or heirloom varietals do have to worry about that. They have to be in tune with, are we going to lose an entire crop because a hurricane hit early and the field flooded, that kind of thing? Do we have to harvest in order to avoid that? And the crop isn't quite ready, so we have to make that trade off there. So it's much riskier to use these heirloom or land race grains and seeds. And that is something that I thought was really interesting is that Scott and Anne from Highwire are very invested in the future of the distillery and the way that they're approaching that is seed security. So they're they're doing a lot of research on their own time, on their own dime to try to look in more in depth into the history, you know, going back to the origins of the varietal in order to preserve it for the future. Shanna, unfortunately, our time is up. But this book has so many more important stories to tell that we could certainly dive into. So we're just going to have to ask people to get the book and read more about it <laughs> and to go to your excellent website, which is shanna com, And I will provide a link to that in the show notes. 
And I especially want to direct people to Unite America's Table. You also have great resources for the service industry during the COVID-19 crisis and COVID resources as a revival guide that we all desperately need. So in closing, I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Shanna Farrell. She is the author of A Good Drink in Pursuit of Sustainable Spirits, and it is published by Island Press. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. 